Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. There, that worked. Ish, okay. Uh, If you missed the first announcements, there is coffee. There's a lot of coffee. Um, So please help yourself to coffee. If you're looking for a coffee cup and there aren't any styrofoam ones, then above the dishwasher there are mugs. Don't worry about washing it. I'll take care of that. Uh, Just help yourself to some coffee. If you get halfway through and you're falling asleep because I'm boring you, that's just go get some coffee. You won't bother me. So, so there is coffee, and I will drink it if you don't. So, so please have some. Well, welcome back. We are still in First Samuel. We're sneaking up on chapter five. A couple of you have mentioned you've been reading ahead, so you know what's coming. Um, and. Every once in a while, I, I comment about how the Bible is entertaining, and I think people, some people are inclined to take offense at that. Uh, like I'm comparing uh, the Bible to HBO or something like that. Um, and fair enough, that's not what I intend by it. But the Old Testament, the New, they're full of rich, well-told stories. They're not stories for story's sake. Right, they're stories that tell us who we are and who our God is and, and what his ways with us are like. But they're also full of delight. They're full of humor. They're full of emotion. They will make you sad. They will lift your spirits. And there are some passages that if you don't laugh out loud when you're reading them, you're not paying attention. Um, and First Samuel 5 is one of those. So I think we'll see some of that this evening. But as we get back into it, just a few things to remind us of. We've been mentioning some of these as we go, but what are our expectations as we approach 1 Samuel and as we get into the book? When we think about where we're coming from earlier in the Bible, I'd like to read a few passages with you right quick. If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 17 and 18. These two chapters together set up our expectations for the leadership of Israel, right? Deuteronomy, uh, the longest sermon ever preached, despite some honorable mentions, right? This is Moses' last word to the generation that's going to enter Canaan, and they'll enter Canaan without him. And so he's expounding on the Ten Commandments for them, telling them what life in the land will be like. He's passing on the torch of leadership to Joshua, and he's he's giving them a sense of what to expect. And so if you come to Deuteronomy 17, you skip ahead to um, verse 14 of chapter 17. In the previous paragraph has talked about what do you do when there's a decision that's very difficult? How do judges confer with the priests to make decisions? Um, we come to verse 14. This is the law for the king. Right? So Israel is going to have a king. The Lord expects that. The Lord will grant that. 
And here, several generations before that king is brought about, the Lord says, this is what you should expect from a king. What they should do, what they should not do. So Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Here's Solomon in that paragraph, right? You should be scratching your head and thinking something's, something's fishy there. Uh, verse 19, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the Lord tells Israel, you're going to want a king. That's okay. You'll get a king. This is what your king should be like. This is what he should do. And in particular, this is what he should not do. And he should have his own copy of the Bible that he's written out by hand, that the priests have overseen so that he's not kind of writing down what he wants instead of what it says. And then he keeps it by his side, studying it constantly so that he doesn't depart from the commandments. So with 1 Samuel as a book that we know inaugurates the kingship in Israel, these verses should be in the forefront of our minds as we're watching for God to begin that monarchy. We need a king like this. This is the king God has told us that we may have. Is that what we desire in a king? And is that what we get? So, so let that be before us. And then in chapter 18, uh, the Lord talks about the priests and the Levites and how they'll be provided for, talks about abominable practices of the nations around them. And then in verse 15, chapter 18, beginning of verse 15, he talks about prophets. So Deuteronomy 18, beginning of verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, 
I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord that has, sorry, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Of course, the book of Deuteronomy ends with the observation that no prophet has arisen like Moses since. However long that's been, right? It's been long enough that it makes sense for that comment to be made. So we end, or we leave Deuteronomy with a priesthood in place. That's a terrible color marker for this. But we have priests, and we're expecting, or we're looking for, both a prophet and a king. We have priests, but we're looking for a prophet, we're looking for a king, as we leave Deuteronomy. We go into the book of Judges, and long story short, things fall apart. Right? And spoiler alert, you read the book of Judges, and you think that what we see is a gradual decline as things get worse and worse, as we get further and further from Moses and Aaron. And then at the end of the book, with that awful, terrible civil war with Benjamin, we find out that we're about a generation removed. Uh, we're, we're really only about one generation removed from the entrance into Canaan. Uh, the narrator has surprised us with that. So that what's deeply wrong with the people of Israel, which is summarized at the end of the book, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is a, uh, a part of the character of the people from the beginning. In fact, Moses makes a remark in Deuteronomy uh, that suggests that that already characterizes the people, that they do what's right in their own eyes. But Judges points out that, that a king, the implication of that refrain in Judges, I should say, is that a king is the answer, right? That if there was a king, the behavior of the people would be restrained. Of course, part of the answer to that is within the book of Judges itself, right? Remember, they try to make Gideon king, and Gideon says, no, the Lord is your king. And then he goes and names his son, my father is king, right? Abimelech. Um, that's what that means. But there in the middle of Judges, we have that reminder that the Lord is their king, which adds an extra layer or maybe sharpens the edge of that refrain that in those days there was no king in Israel. So we come out of Deuteronomy through Judges with this heightened expectation, watching for a king as part of an answer to Israel's problem. Then in our English Bibles, right, we have Ruth coming right after that. If we're, we're reading our Hebrew Bibles, Ruth is in a different part of the Old Testament. Uh, but in our English Bibles, it's, it's right there. It's between Judges and 1 Samuel. And Ruth ends, right? Ruth is set in the time of the Judges. But Ruth ends with the genealogy of David. 
If you look at that last paragraph of Ruth, and some of you had read this just a few weeks ago, right, beginning at verse 16, Ruth 4, beginning at verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. I'm sure you guys had lots of questions about why Naomi is nursing Ruth's child and why the people tell Naomi that she has a son, even though it's Ruth's son. But we solved those a few weeks ago, so we won't worry about that now. Uh, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So of course, we're not reading 1 Samuel for the first time. But by placing Ruth in between Judges and 1 Samuel, it highlights for us that David, oh yeah, David is connected to this expectation of a king that we're looking for. Which makes 1 Samuel really frustrating, actually, as we start it, right? Because we're not introduced to David for a long time. And there's a king that comes before David. His name's Saul, which, and we'll talk about it when we get there, but his name essentially means you asked for it. And, and, but we're not even introduced to him for several chapters. We have all of these other things going on as the Lord works through this faithful family in Israel to raise up first a prophet as the priesthood has fallen into decline. Which if we're tracking, we came out of Deuteronomy, right, with a priesthood in place. But looking for a prophet and looking for a king, our, our expectation of that king has been heightened. But once we hit around 1 Samuel 4, about the place we ended up last week, all of a sudden there's a big X through priests. And so maybe, right, Samuel seems to fulfill some aspect of a priestly role, although he's specifically named a prophet, but now we have the prophet, but we're looking for both a king and a priest. So we're we're frustrated, we're, our expectations keep shifting on us as we read. Now, these three offices, prophet, priest, and king, these are the three offices for which you would be anointed in Israel, Right? You're going to begin as a prophet. You'd be anointed to serve as a prophet. Uh, to serve as a priest, you'd be anointed in a ceremony. To serve as a king, you'd be anointed. Uh, and the New Testament looks at Jesus through the lens of those offices. Uh, for the Presbyterians in the room, who remembers their shorter catechism? What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? You raised your hand. Do you remember? <laughs> Yeah, Christ as our Redeemer executeth the office of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his humiliation and his exaltation. That's not something that the shorter catechism came up with. Uh, 
It's not something that John Calvin invented. In fact, it's not something that's new when the book of Hebrews applies it to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in fact, um, Josephus writes about the, um, the Maccabees in terms of those three offices. Uh, Jews at the time of the New Testament were looking for a prophet who would announce both a priestly and a royal Messiah. Some of them thought those would be separate people. So this whole complex of prophet, priest, and king actually arises out of the Bible's self-presentation. And it's at work here in the book of 1 Samuel, So, which is a really long-winded way of saying 1 Samuel is a book about Jesus. Right? Um, theologians like Latin, and they like fancy words, and so some theologians, as they talk about these three offices of Christ, will use this fancy phrase I've written up there, munus triplex, a threefold healing, because there are aspects of Christ's work as prophet and his work as priest and his work as king that in different ways heal what's wrong with us, right? So if you see that phrase, or if you run across it, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about Christ's work as prophet, as priest, and as king. So anyway, that's all a reminder, background, what's going on in 1 Samuel, what expectations are we coming to the book with? But it's not where we ended last week. Last week we ended with chapter 4. What happened in chapter 4? They lost the ark. What's the phrase that's repeated a couple of times? Relates to the name of a child. The glory has departed. The glory has departed. There's a pun running throughout chapter 4 into chapter 5 and beyond on this word for glory. Because the word for glory, the word for heavy, is the same word employed in different senses in Hebrew. And so that's going to be uh, taken advantage of at several points by the narrative. And this is not right, so I'm just going to leave that. We'll leave that there. Um, but there's this phrase, right? The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been taken. Right? Uh, this word for departed can also mean go away or go into exile. Well, chapter 5 is about what the glory of the Lord does while it's on vacation away from Israel. So let's read chapter 5. It's a working vacation, as we'll see. This is one of those passages that if you don't laugh out loud as you're reading it, you're not, you're not paying attention. So um, remember, Israel thought they needed the presence of the ark in order to succeed against the Philistines. And there are several ambiguities left in the text that leave it unresolved, whether they're, they're thinking that bringing the ark into the camp will mean the Lord will be there and will fight for them, or whether they think the ark itself will act like some magic rabbit's foot that will ensure their victory, which it certainly didn't. But let's read chapter 5 and see what the ark is able to do without the help of the armies of Israel. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So they took it from the, the border of 
Philistine and Israelite territory where they were, where they'd met for battle, deep into Philistine territory to one of their leading cities. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Well, that's interesting. Must have been an earthquake, right? So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy. That's the word for glory there. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Apparently, the representative from Gath had not attended. Right? <laughs> so they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. It could be both small and great. That may not be a difference in age so much as a difference in nobility. Right? So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there again. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. What do you notice in the chapter? Pass it along. Hey, no, thank you. Sitting on down the road. This exit's closed. What else do you notice? Very unstable. God that they have. Well, somebody, they need to hire a better mason. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not working out for Dagon, is it? So they would have brought the Ark of God into Dagon's temple as a trophy of their victory. Right? Uh, to demonstrate that the God of Israel is subject to their God, Dagon. It's like, look, look at what Dagon has allowed us to defeat, right? The God of Israel uh, is defeated, right? He's conquered, he's vanquished. And instead, 
Dagon gets knocked over in the night. Well, obviously that was just an accident, right? Must have been a coincidence. But it can't be a coincidence the next morning, because he's not just falling over again, but what? And an astronaut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was completely made powerless. Yeah. And that uh, the reference that they have in the Bible is that that was what uh, is typical of what the victor did to his enemy. He cut the head off and the hands off. So layers and symbolism there, right? The, the ark that is supposed to be there as a trophy of the Philistines' victory, because of its presence, their god first falls, the image of their god, right, first falls down in what appears to be a posture of worship. But surely that was just an accident. And then falls down a second time, not only in a posture of worship, but also in a posture of utter and complete defeat and humiliation, made powerless and slaughtered. Hands cut off so that he could no longer work on behalf of the Philistines. Head cut off because he has been killed by the Lord God of hosts. So where are we supposed to laugh? <laughs> the whole hands, the hands, the neck, everything in between. But what I remember of the road, what I remember of the uh, descriptions of the ark, and I, I'm getting my chronology mixed up in my head, but there was some detail about the ark of the covenant and the visual picture and the ornament, of jewels and the carvings and all. Nothing of this. Dagon, you know, and you would think if he was some visually interesting thing that there would have been a little bit more description. He is visually interesting. Uh, so we found images of Dagon in the ancient Near East. He's a what, fish outside of scripture, though. Yeah, yeah. So we know from outside of scripture, from archaeological record, from other written records, that Dagon was a, a god who had a fish head. It looked kind of funny. I don't know how you have both a fish head and hands. Of course, he didn't for very long, right? Um, but one other, another aspect that's different between the visual representation of Dagon and the Ark is although the Ark is a representation of God's presence, it is not a representation of God. It's a representation of his throne, right? The Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. So they think that they've brought the image of the God of Israel into Dagon's temple as a sign of defeat. They've actually brought Yahweh's throne into Dagon's temple. Right? This is his footstool, and it's it's kind of like he grinds Dagon under his heel while his throne happens to be there. So is the archaeological fund that it suggests that it's wood or what substance is it? I mean, there would be a few. So, yeah, we, we, as far as I know, they didn't find this one in particular. That would be fine. So, knowing that the word for glory and the word for heavy are a deliberate play on the same word, 
What do you notice about the relationship between chapter 4 and chapter 5? As the Lord's hand was heavy against them. His hand is heavy against them? Good. Which they mentioned a couple of times. So when they say in verse 5 that his hand is hard against us, that is a different but related word. But they did say heavy at a couple of points. Verse 6. Yeah, verse 6, the hand of the Lord is heavy against the people of Ashdod. And it's mentioned again. It's funny in verse 7 where they right. say that his hand is hard against us and against Dagon. Yeah, there's some, we've got to protect our God here. You do. So verse 11 is the other place where it's, it's heavy. Um, but it is. Was that, was that in verse 6 where that's mentioned? 7. 7. Um, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. This is another place where we should laugh. Because they have to protect their God by removing the ark of the Lord from his presence. The presence of the ark is a continuing threat. Right? It's, a, it's a clear and present danger to their idol Dagon, who can do nothing about it. Right? Couldn't anyway. But even if they thought he could, now he's laying on the ground with his head and his hands dropped on him. So they have to protect their God. Um, well, see, you know, what kind of God did you have to protect? Mm-hmm. I'm surprised they stayed loyal to Dagon, didn't start worshiping God. <coughs> that is a fantastic question. Um, why did they stay loyal to Dagon when he's clearly powerless before the Lord? Um, and this is a question that's not isolated to the Philistines, right? This is a question that Augustine explores in The City of God. If you haven't ever read it, it's really long, and so it looks really intimidating. Just read it one page at a time, um, which I'm doing, and I still got a long way to go. But in the beginning, um, Augustine is responding to this charge that the reason Rome has fallen is because people have become Christians and they stopped worshiping the gods that protected Rome. And if it wasn't for these Christians, right, Rome would not have fallen. And Augustine says, interesting, you should bring that up. Let's talk about that. What happened to Rome before the birth of Christ for centuries? Oh, that's right, it was sacked by the Gauls. The gods were sleeping, but the geese were awake, thank goodness so that the Capitol Hill itself didn't fall. And one of the things he develops over several chapters is that question. As the gods of the Greeks and the Romans were found wanting and found unable to defend the Romans, why did the Romans hang on to them? Right? So that at one point, talking about... um, I think Athena's temple in Troy, um, 
and her idol being captured. And she couldn't protect her worshipers, but her worshipers had to protect her idols. He says to to rely on that kind of gods is to rely not on divinities, but on defaulters. So there's an extra edge to that when right here in front of the Philistines is the opportunity to choose the Lord. Not just a demonstration that Dagon is powerless before him, but implied there an opportunity, actually, to change allegiance. And they don't. They don't. They choose to protect their defenseless idol instead. So to your point about hanging on to the loyalty that they hung on to. I mean, today we have people holding on to these traditions without critically assessing what to believe or not to believe. And so I think that's contemporary as well as ancient. You know, so. They just had such a clear demonstration. <laughs> this God's weaker than this God. Yeah. It's the same almost human nature to go, well, let's back the strong one. It's one thing for a football team to keep trying to run in the same plays, even though they're not working. That's true. We don't go for Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite another to have your God on the ground with his head and his hands cut off. And you're like, oh, anybody got the super glue? Oh, Alabama's done that until it's been two times. Going back to why didn't they choose to go to the God instead of Dagon? They knew the law of Moses and didn't agree with the law of Moses. They didn't want to follow the law of Moses. They didn't want to change it. They didn't want to get circumcised. Well, don't you think that God put in every human being a desire to know Him? But he just didn't reveal himself to these people. And they were trying to find God. So they created him. I don't know, that sounds kind of stupid. Yeah. But it just popped in my head. No, that's all the same stupid things. Yeah. All describes that at length in Romans 1. That we, we know enough, right? Well, we know something of what's true. But apart from God's revelation, of himself to us, right? We both suppress and distort that knowledge. Like which, Mars Hill. Which the Philistines have done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like Acts 17. Yeah. So that the Athenians worship an, an unknown God. Mm-hmm. So. We like but, to think that, that we're in control rather than somebody else. <laughs> 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 You know, that's what, what popped into my head that like she was I mean that was really a good comment that you made and you know like she was saying wouldn't God you know want them to know him yes but you know as sinners we I'll speak for myself you know you want to be in control and you don't want somebody or mm-hmm. some other power telling you what there's I don't know we think about the golden calf that the uh, Israelis uh, made while Moses is up on the mountain, you know, talking to God, and they're down there worshiping this golden calf. Yeah. And they certainly do better. 
This is one of the, the dangers of reading the Old Testament. Um, is we like to keep these things at arm's length. Uh, and we have really uh, sophisticated ways of doing that by talking about the cultural difference and the, the, the context of the historical period and things that remind us of the distance between ourselves and the people we're reading about. Then we turn the page and we scratch our heads because the people we're reading about are not as different from us as we like to think they are. And we're not as different from them as we like to imagine ourselves to be. And so we see that, I think, both in the Israelites and the Philistines, uh, because both groups are in some way suppressing a true knowledge of God. And they are... um, I'm looking for a better word than ignoring. They're, they're turning aside from an opportunity to know him that is held out to them, to their great peril, both of them. But we do see in this chapter and the next that the Philistines seem to know something that the Israelites don't. Which on the other hand, just makes a little more pointed Joe's question about why then don't they come? Why don't they come to Yahweh? Was the Holy Spirit not back then? Well, he was. Well, he didn't inspire. He seemed not to have drawn them. So what's the letters of the Philistine? Sea peoples. Yeah, they're they're not Canaanites. They're they settle along the coast and then in toward the coastal plain toward the, the lowlands, the, the hill country. Um, and so they seem to be related to the, the Greeks and other seafaring peoples. Were they the ones that handed the copper age or the bronze age? Likely so. Uh, there's this looming question about this group that's sometimes called the Sea Peoples that seem to have traveled all around the Mediterranean at the, the um, border between the Bronze Age and Iron Age and cause destruction all over and lead to almost like many dark ages in between. And there are questions about how that may or may not relate to the Trojan War and all of that, but the Philistines may or may not be some of those people. So are they the Phoenicians that we read about in history? So they do seem to be Phoenicians. So there's this relationship between the Greek islands and um, the north coast of Africa, just south of the Italian Peninsula and coastal Palestine. It's like one group of people was settling and trading between all three of those areas. And that seems to be the lineage of these Philistines. They're not Canaanites. They're on the western border of the Promised Land. 
but they're not related to the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Zites, and the Genesites. So, that's a good question. So they don't fall under the ban in the way that the other people do. Alright. You bring verse 6 and verse 11 into this conversation with the word glory and the word heavy. The glory may have departed from Israel, but the glory is not inactive. Right? It says, though the glory of God has gone on campaign against the Philistines without the help of Israel's armies. Right? So that the hand of the Lord was heavy or was glorious against the people of Ashdod in verse 6. So that they themselves say, right, that the ark can't stay here. Uh, the ark of the God of Israel, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, as was mentioned. And then, right, the Lord continues that campaign. Uh, it goes through a series of Philistine cities. So that they say again in verse 11, right, there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. This time it's Ekron, right? Um, because the hand of God was very heavy there, or glorious, right? So the Lord is afflicting these peoples with tumors, and people are dying everywhere the ark goes. This would take a while, right? Well, let's go into chapter 6. Let's see what it says. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines. How long? Seven months. Seven months. Let's keep reading. We'll come back and, and talk about what it mentions. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? If only they had a Levite to ask, right? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. Excuse me, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory again to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves away from them. Sorry, lost my place. Uh, verse 8. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, 
then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the ark and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. We'll pause there. We'll read the, well, we'll read the next paragraph. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And we'll read that last paragraph in a bit. What do you notice here in chapter 6? The glory of the Lord has returned. The glory of the Lord has returned. They got a weird idea of use. <laughs> <laughs> they do, yeah. Most of this, right? They've made golden images of their tumors. You know what that looked like? And the rats. And then a whole bunch of rats, right? It's, it's five tumors for the five leading cities of the Philistines. But there's a rat for every named highway intersection. Right? All throughout the Philistine territory. I'm just wondering about the geography of that field also. I mean, they have a name I'm not familiar with, but I'm wondering, is that near what we know Bethlehem as? Oh, no, it's just his house. That's just his house. That's so much the house of the sun. It's, it's interesting, in light of the earlier comments, um, that they return a guilt offering. Like, they understand they are guilty before this God. And whatever degree of conviction, or they realize they, they stand guilty. It's almost as though they would have been willing to add... Yahweh to their pantheon alongside superglued Dagon. <laughs> Except that they can't keep the ark because it's dangerous. So they offer worship in a sense that acknowledges their guilt and acknowledges the danger the Lord poses to them, but doesn't seek refuge in it. So what else do you notice in chapter 6? It says give glory. They, they realized that there was something to it and they wanted to um, 
give glory to, it says, Israel's God. They do. So if God gets glory from the Philistines, again, without the help of Israel's armies. So, but they, they weren't, it, it appeared that they weren't really sure this was going to do it because it said perhaps <coughs> that, uh, that he will lighten his hand uh, and, uh, from off, uh, off of you. So his glory is too much, so they want him to lighten his hand, right? Lift up the heaviness. And you're right, they're both superstitious and suspicious. They're pretty sure that their trouble started when they brought the ark of the God of Israel into their territory. But maybe that's just coincidence. And so they're, they're very scientific in a way, and trying to divine whether or not it's the God of Israel who's done it. Right? And, and what's the result of their experiment? Does it, does it confirm or deny their suspicions? They can't walk straight back to the supposed to go. Yeah. How do they set it up? Well, it's basically they're going against nature because if you take calves away from uh, a milk cow, that milk cow is going to go try to find its calf, I think. But they just, you know, straight on. So it's completely contrary to nature. I sort of felt sorry for the cows. <laughs> they did their job and they got eaten. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, they became hamburger. Good. But you can see the hand of the Lord there, of course. Obviously, that was contrary to nature. Well, God, to uh, although they were lowing as they walked, they were in the cave. They were controlled by God. And the Lord compelled them to leave their cows behind and not just make their way, but actually take the shortest, fastest, most direct route. But once again, you know, we, we see uh, we see an ungodly people recognize the power of the chosen people. Uh, I'm thinking of Pharaoh, for example, said, hey, the problem here, you know, get out of here. The root of the problem, and so they left. So here again, the Philistines recognize or sense some powers beyond their management. Which brings up an interesting point. It comes back to the Philistines know an awful lot. They know about Pharaoh, and they know how that worked out for the Egyptians, and they don't want that to be said of them. So they know something of the Lord. They know something of his glory. They know something of his power. They've experienced the weight of his hand against them and recognize their guilt in that. And yet they do not turn and take refuge in him. Take refuge from him or seek it. Yeah, they try to get away. We're trying to 
send him away and turn away his wrath. So to know something of the Lord is not the same as to take refuge in him. To know something of his power and his judgment and his glory, to know that he is worthy of worship is not the same as to take refuge in him. It's interesting how um, like the earth is in this position because God's people attempted to win a battle with you know their their lucky routes of it. And then treating it like that, it, it doesn't work out for them. But then the Lord goes ahead and defeats the Philistines basically. Just in a different way. I noticed too that the Levites were the ones that took the uh, ark off because in in times past people that even judged the ark that were not uh, priestly and I think that's what's happening uh, as you go on uh, in chapter 6 that that they are uh, the people uh, are being um, disobedient yes the Israelites are being disobedient yes there's a paragraph that we didn't read yet which we will in just a minute and one of the questions hanging over that paragraph is the Lord has done this and the Philistines have clearly learned something although maybe not enough or maybe not the key point but have the Israelites learned anything and maybe not but one other thing to notice before we tackle that last paragraph is how many cities are mentioned by name in chapter three or sorry chapter five versus chapter six? We talk about the five words of the Philistines, right? There are um, traditionally like five leading cities in Philistine territory: Ashdod, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod. Gath. Gath. But how many mentioned in chapter 5? Ashdod, 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 because that's where it goes first. Gath, that's where it goes second. Ekron. Ekron, and then they call the councils. Like, hold on, we got to stop shuffling in between us. This is killing our economy, right? And our people. But how many tumors are made in chapter 6? And the tumors are made because each of those leading cities is afflicted, right? And the mice are made along with it because not just those leading cities, but all of the little villages, right? Any any place there's two farmhouses together, right? All of these places are afflicted by the rats as well. So although we only, right, three specific places are highlighted in the narrative in chapter five, we get the sense from chapter six that the Lord's campaign against the Philistines is more extensive than his narrative for us in chapter five. The destruction is more widespread and on a much larger scale, even than what's pictured. Would the Ark have needed to travel between, um, across some of those other regions, in between um, the ones that are mentioned? That's a good question. It's not mentioned that it does. 
the the idea that we're given is that once it gets to that third city, they call a council to figure out what to do. So it's quite possible that the Lord is able to afflict those cities without even His ark being present in those cities. I meant more to like cross into those territories and route between cities. Yeah, I'm looking for a map in the back of my Bible that would have where those cities are. That's a good question to look at. But I don't have a detailed enough map here that you can check that in the Bible office. Whether the ark physically travels to each of the five Philistine cities or not, right? The Lord has effectively routed not a Philistine army, but the entire united five king um, region of the Philistines, so that their entire confederacy is is on its knees trying to seek a way to get the Lord to leave them alone. All because they brought home somebody else's rabbit hole. They brought home a war trophy that they thought was a symbol of their victory. And instead, it was like this Trojan horse that just opened the door to let the Lord in to destroy them from the inside. Well, the Philistines have learned a lesson. Have the Israelites. Let's read that last bit of chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. <laughs> Yeah. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. The hill, apparently, doesn't need a proper name. Everybody knows which one it is. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. How the Israelites learned the lesson? Well, they, they get learned, don't they? They did. The ark of the Lord is quite capable of routing Israel too, isn't it? So they look upon the ark. That's probably not picking up a pair of binoculars and looking at it from across the field. So in some way treating it with 
contempt, whether they're trying to open it and look in or whatnot. My translation says they looked into the ark. Yeah. So it seems to be that they're they've tried to <coughs> peer into it in some way. They're not just seeing it from afar, otherwise the whole town would be dead. But there's some disrespect in what they've done, whether it's the manner in which they look upon the ark, or they're actually trying to get into it to see what's inside. Mine says the Levite should have covered it. So there are, yeah, there are very specific regulations for how the Israelites are to handle the ark. Um, by means of the Levites, which Israel should know. Now, based on who's been leading Israel spiritually for the last 40 years, I don't think anyone, well, 40 years and seven months at this point, right? I don't think anyone would be surprised that a lot of Israelites don't know, but they should know. So yes, the, the Levites should have come, they should have covered it, they should have carried it on poles, which is not how the Philistines handled it at all. But the Philistines didn't know. But it's interesting that when they made the, uh, um, the sin offering, the guilt offering, they put it in a separate box. They did not try to put it in the ark. Yeah. It's as though the Philistines knew enough that they were not going to try and run that. It's all radioactive or something. Well, if they're, if they're seafaring people who so have family in, in Greece, they probably remember their great auntie Pandora. It's interesting to me, the people of Beth Shemesh, um, they, they treated Kaiba with contempt, and then they, they sent the people of Kiri of Jerem, and it doesn't really sound like the people of Kiri of Jerem necessarily handle it the way that the Lord has prescribed, the way they should know how to do it, but yet there is certainly more respect for it. Because, um, I mean, based on what they should know, you would expect punishment, but there's still, there's obvious reverence in the way that they're treating it. Yeah. God expected more of them than he did the Philistines, and they did not show up or do what was expected. Mm-hmm. Kind of like us as sinners today. We as Christians should know, do know. <clears throat> the outside world does not know but he holds, he holds us accountable. That's the Baptist. <laughs> and yet he does, as, as Rose was pointing out, if we bring these two comments together, right, there's, there's judgment on the people of Beth Shemesh who not only should know better, but in their actions display something of the kind of contempt that Hophni and Phineas embody. But the men of Kiriath Jirim, right, they don't follow the Levitical law either. But they treat the ark with reverence and with respect. And so they're, they're shielded from that same judgment that comes upon the, the other folk. And don't you love the message that they send, right? Oh, look what came back. Let's send it to you guys. Um, 
which, if you remember uh, the book of Judges, one of the ways, uh, so Dan Block, in trying to, to capture the thought of the book of Judges, he calls it the, the canonization of Israel. That Israel gradually, or perhaps rapidly, becomes like the people they're supposed to be distinct from. Well, that's just happened in miniature here. As the people of Beth Shemesh become like the Philistines, as they greet the coming of the ark with joy, and it's not coming to them as uh, a war trophy, but it's the return of this thing that symbolizes for them good fortune and God's favor, but they treat that with contempt. They experience God's judgment, and then just like the Philistines, they can't wait to get rid of it and just send it on down the line so that it can wreak its havoc somewhere else. So, who's going to break the cycle? Right? And what do we need for that cycle to be broken? Not on board anymore, so that doesn't work. We need a prophet, a priest, and a king. We need a prophet whose word never falls to the ground. A prophet like Moses, whom the Lord will raise up from among their brothers. We need a faithful priest who will go in and out before the Lord's anointed, which the Lord has promised is coming, but not from the house of Eli. And we need a king. We need the horn of the Lord's anointed to be exalted as Hannah prayed. And so in order for anything to change in Israel, we need God to bring those things to pass. So, to be continued. Um, As I read this, I'm thinking about the handling of communion in the New Testament and the warnings that were given about how to have communion take communion, be prepared for communion, and the reverence for that in a new covenant setting. And uh, it's easy in contemporary thinking, maybe, practices, there are traditions to think. And I'm thinking about this, and maybe there was a similar sort of attitude. But I wondered about this house with the ark shattered. Is this just a by the way random house? I don't know. We don't get much description of it, do we? Right? I mean, it was not like a stately place or didn't sound like a special place. It's like the nearest house they came to is like, well, we'll just put it here. To the house of Abinadab on the hill. And we're not told much more about that, except that it stays there for a long time. We do find out later as it's moved again, right? Because this episode will be repeated when David tries to bring the ark to Jerusalem. He'll try to bring it to Jerusalem. Someone will treat it with contempt by touching it, right? Because it, it should have been carried on poles by the Levites instead of being on a cart carried by oxen, right? Because that's what the Philistines do. And the Lord doesn't need an ox to ride around on, 
right? They tried that, and well, Aaron tried that in Exodus 32, right? And so David's like, hold on, this thing's dangerous. And so it, it gets put to one side in somebody's house again, right? Obed-Edom. And it stays there a long time, and his household experiences great blessing because of that. And then David looks at it, he's like, oh, let's, uh, let's move that, let's bring that closer. So, so we'll see similar circumstances surrounding the ark and the movement of the ark repeated again later. So. This seems to be just the ark. Um, but that is a, a big question because we have a lot of information about the tenth of meeting. And then we have a lot of information about Solomon's temple. And then we don't have a lot of information about the structure in which the ark rests in between. Right? It rests at a sanctuary in Shiloh that's not permanent on the scale of Solomon's temple, but is permanent enough that it has things like doorposts. And it can be described with a word that means either temple or palace. It's, it's the same word. So it does seem to be more than a tent that, in, that it inhabits in the interim. So. And as for communion, we could, we've got a, enough of a spectrum of churches represented here. I think we could get a, a good sized argument going on that. But I do think there's something to that question of treating the Lord's ordinances with contempt. Um, and there being a danger there. And so it's appropriate for there to be a warning uh, to unbelievers and to those who would observe it in a way, um, in, in a careless manner surrounding observing the Lord's ordinances. So, Paul has to have a lengthy discussion about that with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. So. Question. If you go back a little bit to five, I think, and it talked about Eli's son stayed with the Ark of the Covenant in um, verses five, four, and five. It says Eli's two sons were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Do you think they thought that would protect them? This is a chapter four. Because um, yes, yeah, it, it, it expressly mentions, right, the people brought up uh, from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So I, I, I can't speak for Hophni and Phinehas, although it does seem to be the view of the entire Israelite army that the presence of the ark means security. But the narrator has done something for us as readers um, by mentioning that they're there together, that this spells doom. Because we've just been freshly reminded that the sign that the Lord is going to bring all of this down on 
the head of Eli and his household, and soon, is that Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. And here they are, together, at the battle line. So, so that, like the, the score for this movie is in a minor key, and it's getting louder, right there in, in chapter four. So, All right. Well, why don't we pray? And we'll, we'll break early. Get home before it gets dark tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for stories that tell us who we are and who you are and who you are on behalf of your people. Stories that don't just give us the history of how you have dealt with our fathers, but also give us warning and encouragement. Warning not to treat you lightly or to take your presence for granted. And encouragement not to simply fear you, but to take refuge in you as well. Lord, would you continually open our eyes to understand your word more clearly, to see Jesus in it, and to become more like him as by your Holy Spirit, you transform us through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.